0: Hello and welcome to Room 106, I'm John Gagan from Planning Magazine. Every week we descend into Room 106, the dark chamber which is regularly filled by the snowstorm of new planning information, and extract the key information that you need to know. This week we're going to tackle news that the government has finally revealed the date that the long-awaited biodiversity net gain requirement will finally come into force an important High Court ruling on amending permissions, and the unusual story of a resident allegedly being offered cash in a night out at a lap dancing club in relation to a planning application in a Welsh village. We'll also be rounding up the other key news from the past week. And hopefully, I'm going to find a few other Room 106 inmates who I can talk to about all this. By the end of the show, you should be well on top of all the recent planning news. Right, time to face the music and enter room 106. Here I go. Okay, so I'm back inside room 106. It's as foreboding as ever and still stuffed full of all the paperwork from the pre-Christmas government announcements. I'm hoping that some of my colleagues are already in here. Ah, here they are. Who's that? Oh, it's our Insight Editor, Samantha Eckford. Hello, Sam. Hello. And here's Alex King, our reporter. Hello, Alex. Hello. And finally, here's our Online Editor, Toby Porter. Hello, Toby. Hello. Alex, I'll start with you. You've been looking at the latest with Biodiversity Net Gain, which will require developers to improve the biodiversity of a site by at least 10% when they get planning permission for a new scheme. So, what's the latest?
1: The government has finally revealed the long-awaited commencement date for mandatory biodiversity net gain for both major and smaller developments after laying a statutory instrument before Parliament. The statutory instrument, tabled on the 17th of January, confirmed that the commencement date for major development is set to be the 12th of February. Now, biodiversity net gain was originally supposed to come into force in November, 2023, as stipulated by the 2021 Environment Act. However, in September last year, the government pushed back the start date to January 2024, because the necessary legislation required to bring the new rules into force would only be laid before Parliament in November. Then, on the 11th of January, the Times reported that the launch of the biodiversity net gain requirement would be postponed yet again to February due to more parliamentary delays. This statutory instrument confirms that the January deadline has been missed by a couple of weeks, with mid-February the expected launch date. Alongside the statutory instrument, the government also issued a statement on the 18th of January confirming that the biodiversity net gain requirement for small sites would only apply from the 2nd of April. The government had stated in November that the requirement would only apply to small sites from April, but hadn't specified an exact date, so that's also new. Small site development includes residential development where the number of dwellings is between one and nine, or if the quantity of homes is unknown, the site area is less than 0.5 hectares. For commercial development, it applies where the floor space created is less than 1,000 square metres, or the total site area is less than one hectare. Okay, thanks for that
0: clarification. This is a pretty big development because um People have been waiting for biodiversity net gain for years now, since the um, Environment Act came into force. So what exactly does this statutory instrument do?
1: Essentially, it brings various provisions for BNG in the Environment Act into force. These relate to Section 98 of the Act, Biodiversity Gain as a Condition of Planning Permission, Section 100, the Biodiversity gain Site Register, and Section 101, Biodiversity Credits. Now, it is important to say that Parliament hasn't debated the statutory instrument yet, so this could all change. And planning has asked the government when Parliament would debate it, but it's not confirmed that for us yet.
0: Okay, so there's still a little bit of uncertainty. And do we have any more information on what kind of permissions BNG will apply to?
1: Yes. So in the statement published on the 18th of January, the government said that from the 12th of February, Biodiversity Net Gain will apply to new applications for planning permission except for applications for retrospective permission, exemptions, and transitional arrangements. Conversely, applications made under any other route, for example, deemed permissions under Section 90 of the Town and Country Planning Act, or permission granted by a local development order, will not be subject to mandatory biodiversity net gain just yet. Further regulations will be required to modify the procedure for these other routes to planning permission. The government said it would release further information on this in due course, and that's something we've got to keep our eye on. What this does potentially mean, though, as one commentator pointed out to us, is that local planning authorities could well see an avalanche of applications just before the 12th of February, and very few immediately thereafter. And what transitional arrangements are in place? So the government also said in its statement, transitional arrangements it had put in place ensured that BNG would not apply to a planning permission if the application was made before the 12th of February. It explained that these transitional arrangements also mean that if you receive planning permission before the 12th of February and that permission wasn't subject to BNG, if you then apply via section 73 of the Town and Country Planning Act to vary a planning condition on that permission, The new permission granted would also be exempt from biodiversity net gain. The government added that if a planning application for a small site development was made during the small site's extended transition period, in other words between the 12th of February and the 2nd of April, and subsequently a section 73 variation was granted after the 2nd of April, the same transitional arrangements will apply and BNG will not be required on any subsequent section 73 variations.
0: So it's edging closer by diversity net gain uh, after a, a long wait and uh, several delays. We get, it seems we're getting, we're getting very close to the launch of it now. And as you say, I, I'd imagine that a lot of applicants will be rushing to get their planning applications in before 12th of February, as um, I think a lot of developers are worried about the um, being subject to these new requirements. Okay, thanks very much for that, Alex. Sam, turning to you, you've been looking at what appears to be a pretty significant court judgment. What's it about?
2: Yes, so this is the news that the High Court has quashed a council's decision to approve a developer's bid to amend an outline permission for a 2,745 home estate regeneration scheme to make it severable in a ruling that considered the implications of a landmark Supreme Court judgment that made it harder for developers to use drop-in applications to modify consents for larger schemes.
0: Okay, so by severable, you mean that the the planning permission can be split into um, different parts? Yes. And so what's the background to this case?
2: The London Borough of Southwark has since 2015 granted a series of planning permissions to Housing Association Notting Hill Genesis for the redevelopment of the Aylesbury estate. This included a 2015 outline planning consent for these 2,745 homes, across an area of 22 hectares that would be divided into three phases. Then, in July 2022, the developers submitted an application for detailed planning permission for another phase on top of that, and the Council approved this so-called drop-in application in January last year. A further application was then submitted under Section 96A of the Town and Country Planning Act to make a non-material amendment to the 2015 outline consent. This amendment, which was approved by the council in March last year, inserted the word severable into the description of the development authorised by the original outline consent in a move that would essentially allow the developer more freedom to diverge from what was approved in the outline consent. So as you say, it's about splitting up that development. But following that, local resident Ace and Dennis challenged the consent of the amendment, arguing that it contravened a 2022 Supreme Court judgment commonly referred to as Hillside, which clarified that, and I quote, a planning permission to develop a plot of land is not severable into separate permissions applicable to discrete parts of the wider site, unless the permission clearly says so. Dennis argued that the effect of that amendment was to disapply the long-established Pilkington principle, which says that if it is physically impossible to carry out development approved by another consent on the same site, then that original consent may no longer be relied upon.
0: So what exactly to this decision say?
2: So in his decision uh, on this case, Mr Justice Holgate said that he had no doubt that on true construction, the outline consent was not severable prior to the section 96A amendment and said that it was a single planning permission with provisions for phasing. He found that the amendment had the effect of disapplying this Pilkington principle and actually constituted a material change to the original um, permission. He therefore allowed Dennis's claim um, and quashed the council's consent for the amendment.
0: So why is this significant?
2: So according to Landmark Chambers, which acted um, for the claimant in this case, the case has significant implications for existing and future schemes where drop-in permissions have or are proposed to be used. Nicola Gooch, who is a planning partner at law firm Owen Mitchell, said in a blog on the firm's site that this decision marked the first judicial guidance that we have on how Hillside, which as you say is this um, really important judgment from 2022 on how this, this judgment is likely to be applied in practice. So according to Gooch, we now have judicial confirmation that Hillside both can and does apply to phased outline planning permissions. And also it confirms that retrospectively severing a consent is likely to be considered material, so could potentially have significant implications.
0: Okay, that's a great summary, Sam. Thank you very much. So from a very technical case to a rather more headline-grabbing one, I'm turning to Toby. Finally, you've been taking a closer look at a rather unusual planning controversy, haven't you?
3: Yes. Minutes of a council meeting state that a local residents was offered, quoting here, cash and a night out at a lap dancing club in relation to a planning application in a village. The allegation emerged in minutes published on the website of Nelson Community Council near Caerphilly, mid Glamorgan, Wales, for a meeting last August. In one section of the meeting, members, quoting again, considered the planning applications and wider development in Llanfaben, a village near Caerphilly. According to the minutes, among the concerns was that a local resident was offered cash and a night out
0: at a lap dancing club. Okay, wow. You don't expect to see those words in um, council minutes. Certainly not for a, um, a community council in, uh, in rural Wales. I was very impressed by your pronunciation there, Toby, of the, um, <laughs> the village. I'm not, I, I, can't, I can't say whether it's correct or not, but it sounded, uh, sounded impressive. Okay, so what do you know about what kind of development and planning application are we talking about here?
3: Well, the minutes and meeting agenda do not specify what developments are being objected to or who the applicants are nor who offered the resident the money and the club visit. However, one of the other concerns listed mentions turbines, while another refers to renewable energy development in Wales, suggesting that at least one of the proposals involves wind energy. We asked Nelson Community Council and its eight councillors individually for clarification, but got no response. However, national newspaper coverage reports that the resident is a farmer, and the plans involve a giant wind turbine on his land, the report said. The Daily Mail report goes on to claim that the firm in question is Cardiff-based Butte Energy.
0: What have we been able to find out about this firm?
3: Well, Butte Energy is actually currently promoting the Twin Wheel Energy Park on a site about three kilometres to the south of Llanfaben. It will have 14 wind turbines generating 92.4 megawatts of energy, and his development of national significance, so it's been considered by Welsh Ministers rather than the local authority, County Borough Council. The Community Council Minutes also state that the meeting discussed representations to Government Planning Agency, Planning and Environment Decisions Wales, quoting again in response to the Twin Hoyle Energy Park. It does go on to say that a meeting with Butte Energy and local Senate member, uh, Hefin David, to discuss community benefit, took place on the 7th of September.
0: So what did the firm say about all this when we spoke to them?
3: So when we contacted Butte Energy, they strenuously denied the allegation in the Daily Mail and a company spokesman gave a statement which said, this allegation is baseless and unfounded. It should never have been published by Nelson Community Council as any form of credible or approved council minutes. Based, as it is, on hearsay, gossip and innuendo, the claim is defamatory, and the matter is now in the hands of our lawyers.
0: Wow, okay. So that's a very unusual case. As I said before, you don't often associate planning and lap dancing, so um, no wonder it made national headlines. I guess it does raise the wider question of how far developers can and should go in offering incentives to local communities to host infrastructure projects, which is... um Something the government has, um, well, the UK government has has certainly explored and and considered. Okay, thank you very much for that, Toby. And now we're going to bring our listeners up to date on some of the other key news stories from the past week, right? And it's been quite a, uh, there's been quite a lot of news this week.
3: That's right. Up first, North Yorkshire Council has taken enforcement action against house builder Taylor Wimpey over its failure to comply with a condition on a 178 home scheme that it says, quote, does not properly promote the health and well-being of the local community. Elsewhere, Bristol City Council Planning Committee Chair and Green Party Councillor Annie Stafford Townsend has raised more than a quarter of the amount necessary to sue for defamation after members of the council's ruling Labour group said she allowed racist comments at a meeting to discuss a crematorium expansion. In other news... Litchfield District Council in Shropshire announced that its entire planning department had spent a whole working week clearing a backlog of enforcement cases from nearly 400 cases down to 199. Also, the planning inspector has announced that from the 1st of April 2024, interested parties will no longer be able to share views on planning and enforcement appeals via email and will instead be required to submit comments through its online appeals casework portal. And in other news, new energy national policy statements that came into force last week, state that the Energy Secretary should assess all applications for development consent for low carbon renewable energy projects on the basis that there is an urgent need for them. In another legislative update, the government has proposed that all applications for nuclear projects in England be included in the nationally significant infrastructure projects planning regime, including those currently falling below the 50 megawatt threshold. And finally, Transport Minister Hugh Merriman has granted development consent order for the widening of a 20 kilometer section of the A12 trunk road in Essex to three lanes after placing substantial weight on the scheme's socioeconomic impact and limited weight on its impact
0: on carbon emissions. Okay, thanks again, Toby, for that very helpful summary. Of course, listeners can read more on all those stories at planningresource.co.uk. Well, I think my work in Room Six is just about done. I'm gonna get out before there are any more announcements or decisions. Phew that's another week of news summarised we'll be back with a bonus edition next week when we take a deep dive into what the new national planning policy framework says about meeting housing need and housing land supply in the meantime if you aren't a room 106 subscriber already don't forget to subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts and for a daily bulletin of planning news plus weekly analysis and specialist bulletins please subscribe at planningresource.co.uk If you haven't already, don't forget to enter the planning awards to give yourself and your team the opportunity to get the recognition that your work deserves. The deadline is 29th of February. Our thanks to producer Inga Marsden from Haymarket Business Media and Daisy Chaku from Rethink. And thank you all for listening. See you next week.